Well, let's go ahead and begin. It's 8 o'clock. My name is John Mark Hicks, and um, we're talking about the husband of one wife, and today we're going to focus on whether that phrase is exclusively male or not. Does it have any potential or intent, we might say, to actually include females? And that's the question we're going to raise today. Now, if you, uh, I have a handout, but it's on my website. So my website is johnmarkhicks.com. I don't make any money on that. It's not monetized, so I'm not making money when you, you won't get any commercials or anything like that. Um, but it's the first page. As soon as you, you log into it, it'll, that should be the first page is kind of the <coughs> outline for this morning's discussion. Yesterday, we just introduced a few ideas. Uh, maybe I need to rehearse just a couple of them. One is, you know, there's some hermeneutical differences here. Whether this is, are these texts things we just reproduce, reduplicate? Um, or are these texts things that uh, participate in kind of a theological understanding, and a theological hermeneutic? <coughs> not going to try to press that one today. There are places where you can go to, to read about that. Um, but I offered what my big story is. My big story is God created male and female and differentiated, a differentiated difference. There, are, there is a difference between male and female. But those differences God created as a mutuality to enhance the human, enhance human flourishing. Male and female contribute to human flourishing. In the fall, we have power dynamics entering into the fray. And those power dynamics, God said, you know, what's going to happen is, and he will rule over you. And that is a consequence of the moral chaos that has been introduced into the world. And Israel lived in that kind of world, but gave it a kind of redemptive lift in many ways, but also punctuated by uh, moments where God basically says, um, uh, it's, it's not... There's more to this. Deborah, for example. I think Deborah has authority over men, right? Deborah has a, a prophetic ministry, a judging ministry. She is uh, appointed by God. Uh, in fact, she's one of the few judges that doesn't have anything negative said about her in the, in the whole book. So there are moments when we see something coming. Joel prophesies, right? There'll come a day in the last days when... Sons and daughters will prophesy and have visions and dream dreams. So I would suggest that Pentecost is kind of the hinge point here. The pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost is a um, enabling and empowering, a transforming work of God, God's presence, God's transforming presence, God's equipping presence, gifting presence. Um, and that uh, what we see uh, is a new opening, a new space. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, that's all right there in Joel 2, right? You get all of those categories, male and female, free, free and enslaved, and uh, Jew, Gentile, all flesh, right? So I think uh, that the, um, in terms of my understanding, new creation is about the gifting of people, and the Spirit gifts us. And we need male and female with all gifts, because every gift has its role, every gift has its function, and every gift 
gifting a female and gifting a male, there's a differentiatedness there, but I think there's a need for, for the common good and for human flourishing and for the flourishing of the church that both be contributing to that goal in gifts without a differentiation of gifts. So we come to 1 Timothy, because that's exactly, I mean, that's the place where everybody's going to jump, right? Okay, there is a difference. Here is the difference, right? And here's the text that tells us what the difference is. Um, 1 Timothy 2. Men pray without anger. Women pray with modesty. And... um, A woman should learn in submission. A woman should be quiet, learn in submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Uh, She must be quiet. Because Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. And she will be saved through childbearing if they continue. You know, faith and holiness and modesty. So, if we're going to talk about husband of one wife as a potentially inclusive category or a potentially inclusive um, qualification or whatever word you want to use, I think we have to think about 1 Timothy 2. Because if you have a certain reading of 1 Timothy 2, there's no way you can be inclusive with elders. Right? If you understand have authority over a man as a kind of legitimate, um, that a woman cannot have any legitimate authority over a man, and that having authority refers to being an elder, or having authority refers to being a pastor, or lead minister, or whatever category we've invented since the New Testament to uh, kind of restrict things, um, then no, you're not even, you're not even, we're not even open to an inclusive reading because we've already shut that down with chapter 2, right? So I want to just suggest three critiques of a kind of a soft complementary reading of 1 Timothy 2. I don't have time to go into great detail here because, um, well, I want to get to the the main thing that we have on the table. Um, If you want more, you can read some of the stuff on my blog or you can read my book, Women Serving God, where I go in great detail about 1 Timothy 2. But let me just offer three really quick points of critique. One is this word authority. That word is the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. If Paul wanted to say, I don't want a woman to be an elder, why doesn't he use the word for authority or management that he uses everywhere else? Or that he uses in the next chapter? He uses a word that mean, that has, that's translated authority that no one's really absolutely sure what it means. There's no absolute certainty here. If whatever you say it means, there's always a, ah, maybe. Because we just don't know. Now, I'm of the opinion that Paul uses this word, um, uh, this unique, rare word, because he's addressing something unique and rare in the situation that's happening. And it has more of a negative impact. I think King James got it right. Usurp authority. 
It has a, it has a deal with kind of domineering, a kind of bossiness, a kind of um, takeover sort of feel. I don't want, I do not permit women to teach in a way that they dominate and control. Right? But apparently that's what somebody was doing. Paul saying, I don't want this to happen is probably because somebody was doing it. That he says, okay, I don't want that going on. But any sense of a, of a um, that this word authority means something like being an elder is a, really a jump, seems to me. One, in terms of the meaning of the word. Two, in terms of the fact that Paul uses other words for that, not this one. And he doesn't even use the common word he uses for authority, because he never uses that for men and women, except... As I said yesterday, 7.14 in 1 Corinthians, 7.4 in 1 Corinthians, and it's a mutual authority. So I think the, the problem with authority, the word authority here is really um, trips us all up in one way or another. Second, a second critique, and this is all very brief, is if you take verse 13 as creation order, some kind of creation hierarchy, the first, second, you know, first created, then Eve. I take it as a sequence myself, not as a hierarchy. Because Paul uses that same phrase in the very next chapter when he's talking about deacons, at first and then. He uses it as a sequence. Um, if you take it as a hierarchy, though, if it's rooted in creation, and there's a hierarchy in creation, in God's intent in creation, which is the claim, how do you restrict that to church or home? seems to me if it's a creation reality, it applies all up and down, right? It applies not only to the home, to the church, it applies to the hospital board. It applies to the government. It applies to social relationships in the culture that we ought to be enforcing, not, that's not the right word, we ought to be uh, witnessing to the idea that men should have social power, authority, social authority. Because we're supposed to have authority, right? And women do not have authority over us. So how do we restrict that to home and church? I think that's a, a real problem. And then the third, third point, I have a little uh, YouTube video where I go in more detail about this if you want to go in more detail. But the third point is, how does the fall function in Paul's rationale? When you come to verse 14... Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. It's the word, the only word is repeated twice, deceived, deceived. That, that ought to tell us, oh, there's something about deception that's important here. That Adam wasn't, but Eve was. Now, historically, that would be read by uh, complementarians as she was more gullible. That's why she shouldn't be a teacher, because she's gullible, right? But I think most complementarians reject that now, because obviously that's, that doesn't work. Because why would you want her teaching children then, you know, if she's the most gullible? Or why would you want her teaching other women if she's gullible, right? If, that's, if, that's, if it's an emotional or, nat or ontological quality about the woman, then you don't want her teaching anybody, right? 
seems to me. So I don't think it's an ontological quality that he's talking about here. He's talking about the situation. She listened to the serpent, and worse, Adam listened to her. Right? So I think the problem that's going on in Timothy, uh, in Ephesus, is that uh, Paul is addressing a situation, whatever the source of it, whatever the particulars of the, of the teaching, there's false teaching going on in Ephesus. That's how 1 Timothy begins in chapter 1. That's how it ends in chapter 6. There's some kind of false teaching. These, there are men who are arguing about it. Uh, they're, they're estranged about it. They may be arguing with women, in fact. Or they may be arguing among themselves. Women, uh, some women, not all, are dressing in a style. Some say it reflects Artemis cult. Some say it just reflects wealthy women showing off. Or some say uh, it has to do with some kind of proto-Gnostic thing. We don't know. <laughs> I don't think we really know. But we do know there's a problem. And the problem has to do with the uh, context in Ephesus having something to do with women who are around saying things they should not say, chapter 5, verse 14, and leading people to Satan. Right? So uh, there's some kind of turmoil going on here. So my understanding of it is that Paul is not addressing a timeless universal rule, but he's addressing this situation where some women are, are um, promoting some sort of false teaching, and they are doing it in a very domineering way. They're doing it in a very authentic way, right? Uh, whatever that word authority is about. Um, and so it's not this kind of creation ordinance. It's rather about deceived women. Some, some deceived women. Right? Now, if that's true... And, of course, that's a big if, right? You're going to have to study that one out yourself and figure out what you think about that. But if that's true, then we come to chapter 3, and Paul begins by saying this is a trustworthy saying. And the question, what's, what's a trustworthy saying? You know, the, some put that with she shall be saved through childbearing which nobody really knows what that means. And it's part of Paul's rationale. You know, Paul, Paul has a rationale, and he gives a, one of the rationales. We're not clear about that. I mean, I don't think um, uh, many people are, think they're clear about that. So we have this question mark about one of the rationales anyway, which says to me, we've got to be really careful about how we apply this thing, uh, since we're not really fully understanding what the rationale is. And I think that goes to verse 14 too. So, you know, especially in a complementarian context, we don't really know how to work with that. In what way is the complementarian, in what way is the prohibition of women teaching men rooted in Eve's deception? How does that work? How does Eve, what does Eve's deception have to do with women not teaching men? that doesn't also prevent them from teaching others than men. But anyway, I don't want to go back to that. Let me move forward. So we have in chapter 3, verse 1, um, you know, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone, deserve, if anyone seeks or desires an office, uh, that one desires a good, noble task. 
desiring, and that's, that's the, or he desires is the translation of the ESV. I have a couple problems with the translation of the ESV. They put a he in there when there's no he. There's no he in verse 1. There's no pronoun, masculine pronoun. And to call it an office is also to assume something. There's no word for office in the text. I think that assumes a kind of institutionalization that I'm not so sure is there. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't want to put it in a translation and assume everybody is going to take it that way. So it says, if anyone. Now, this follows right after. You know, no, no chapter divisions, of course, in a letter, right? So chapter 2, verse 15, she will be saved. In other words, we're no longer talking about um, this group of women, whatever they were doing that was problematic, and they continued to do it, and they just promote themselves, or whatever it is they're doing. But Paul turns it by saying, she will be saved. I think that's talking about Eve, but, man, who knows? I mean, I, I don't know for sure. I'm not clear about it myself. But she will be saved if they, who's the they? Well, I take it the they are the women who are causing the problem, right? Just like there are men who are causing problems in verse 8. There are women causing problems in verses 9 and 10. Uh, 11, 12. So if the they refers to the women, it could refer to the husband and wife. Because some people read this as husband and wife, you know, in chapter 2. And that's possible. So, so many questions that I can't be sure what, what's going on here. But she will be saved if they, something that's just a quirkiness, I think it's in, very intentional that Paul is saying, look, these women are not excommunicated. They're not irredeemable. These women, can, can, they can participate if they continue. You know, if they continue in faith and holiness and love. So when Paul says, if anyone, in chapter 3, verse 1, it seems to me it's um, anyone. It's a gender-neutral word. And the nearest referent is the women. She, they. Unless the they refers to husbands and wives. So I'm thinking uh, myself that this, this heading over, <coughs> over the section about overseers, specifically, is characterized by a gender-neutral invitation, if anyone. Doesn't say if anyone except women. Doesn't doesn't exclude women, unless you take husband of one wife, and that, we're going to get to that. But it doesn't exclude women. He could have said if any man, but he didn't say if any man. He said if anyone, and every time that if anyone, the tis, the Greek article tis, every time it's used in First Timothy, it's inclusive, except for one case where it is specifically female because he uses the word widow. 1 Timothy 5.16. It's, uh, if anyone will deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That even has masculine pronouns in it. But we don't take that as just men, right? Or if, um, I mean, there are a lot of, I could give you a lot of examples here of, of the if anyone 
But in the pastorals, if anyone, is always kind of inclusive. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 3, if anyone teaches a false doctrine, if anyone, that certainly includes men and women, right? So I would want to suggest that that kind of frames the discussion, that opens the door, shall we say, to a, a wider interpretation of these qualifications or virtues. Um, a second point um, is that there are no masculine pronouns in this text. None. Your translation may have them, but not in, not in the Greek text. There's no, there are no masculine pronouns. Even when he could have used one, like his own house or his house, he doesn't use the male pronoun for that. He uses a generic, their own house. Yeah. I, that seems to me pretty significant. When, um, and, and parallel to what Paul does elsewhere, like in Romans 12. Romans 12, 6 to 8, you remember the list of gifts? There are no male pronouns there either. It's participles and so on. But there are no pronoun, male pronouns there. And clearly we'd want to say, you know, women have a gift of mercy. <clears throat> or they wouldn't be married to most of you people. <laughs> um, they, they have a gift of teaching, right? Prophesying, administrating, um, you know, a gift of generosity. You know, Paul doesn't use any male pronouns in that section. Now, but the ESV, the ESV, I think the ESV is one of the most um, problematic translations of some of these texts. They insert male pronouns for two of those participles out of eight, or whatever number it is. Teaching and administration. Say that again. That, they, they insert male pronouns in their, tra in their translation, like he who teaches, the ESV, English Standard Version. They insert two male pronouns, not on the mercy, not on the generosity, not on, on the prophesying, because they know they can't get away with that one. I don't know their motives, so I shouldn't say that. Um, but they, they, and I apologize for that. That's not fair. Um, the, uh, but in the teaching and the leading, which is not there. You know, just not there. A third point, and I want to move ahead here. Uh, can go into a lot more detail with some of these things, but the third point is there are no qualifications or no virtues in this list that are exclusively male, except maybe one hu husband of one wife, which we're going to get to, right? Because I know that's why we're all here, right? Um, now, there are three virtues that some suggest are only male. One is teacher, apt to teach. Well, if you got rid of all your female teachers in your congregation, you would, you would have a huge loss, wouldn't you? I mean, Paul expects women to teach. Titus chapter 2. Yeah. Doesn't say who to teach, or what, but Paul does have women teaching. Right? So apt to teach is still appropriate for women. Not exclusive to men. Unless you think 1 Timothy 2.12, and the teaching of 1 Timothy 2.12 is some sort of 
very specialized, um, authoritative kind of teaching, like what the person does from the pulpit on Sunday uh, or what an elder does. You know, if you already defined the terms so that I don't want a woman to teach, an elder has to be, or an overseer has to be apt to teach, you've already defined the terms and you've already excluded it. But I think that's putting the, heart, the, court, <laughs> the, the cart before the horse, right? So apt to teach. Well, women are apt to teach. Nothing masculine about that. Um, <coughs> violent. Now, I think it's probably true that Paul, Paul expected, maybe expected is not the right word, but Paul understood that most of the leaders in these communities were going to be men. I mean, if you look at whom Paul describes as a co-worker or a co-laborer, 80% are men, those that are named, that is. But there's still 20% that are women who are named. So I think Paul thought, yeah, most of the leaders are going to be male, uh, given the culture in which they lived. But women can be pretty violent too, can't they? I mean, read Judges chapter 5. <laughs> Jael, you know, Sisera, you know. Or read the Apocrypha, Judith. You've seen the paintings, right? Holding up the head after cutting it off. Or even in the Greco-Roman world, even though men had a tendency to be more violent, which I think is true. I think that's a tendency. Men are typically more aggressive and et cetera. I, I, I can go with the, the kind of gender differentiation there, but not exclusively. Not exclusively. The goddess of war was Bellona. In her temple, the Roman Senate would go to make plans for war in a goddess temple. Or the Greek god of, of vengeance is Nemesis, goddess. Yeah. So I think there's a violent streak there yeah. uh, that was understood in, in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and then, um, oh, what was it? Oh, managing the household. You know, it was, uh, in part of the Greco-Roman household, the mater familias did manage the household. And there are texts, there are legal texts, where women are called pater familias. Pater meaning father, right? They are called pater familias in legal documents because they are, they are now the managers of the house. They either don't have a husband or they don't have a father, though that's typically, they have a husband or father, typically. But, you know, Lydia says her household, right? Or in 1 Timothy 5, we are told that the women, the younger widows, uh, should marry and manage their households. So managing a household is not something unique to men. So I don't think there's anything explicitly, exclusively male in this list. Another point is that when you look at the words that are used to describe the virtues for an overseer, almost every one of those words are used to describe women elsewhere. Um, I, wish, I wish I could give you a chart and go over it, but we don't, I knew I wouldn't have time to do that. So do that work on your own. Or look at uh, Philip Payne's book. He does some of that in his book, um, Women, Men and Women, One in Christ. 
And there are other places. Bartlett does that in his book on uh, women and men. Um, there are several places. But I think it's significant that there's nothing unique about being, uh, nothing uniquely male in this virtue list. Because all these words are used to describe women elsewhere in First Timothy and Titus. I should add Titus. Um, but let me go to the fifth point, if you're following the outline. Deacons, deaconesses. Here, I want to read you a couple of things, so let me get over to that point. You know, there was a time in the Restoration Movement when churches had deaconesses. They affirmed deaconesses. You know, Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, Talbert Fanning, James R. Howard, who was, you know, uh, very, what we would call conservative, for sure. Uh, J.M. Barnes, who was the, kind of the leader, um, the leading figure in, the, in Churches of Christ in Alabama. J.M. Barnes said, yeah, we, can, we need deaconesses. Um, Moses Lard, Robert Milligan, Daniel Sommer, E.G. Sewell, C.R. Nichol, G.C. Brewer, J. Ridley Stroop. So deaconesses are not a, a weird thing, right? They are very much a part of our own history and a part of church history. Uh, and they're called diakonos. They're not called deaconesses. That word doesn't come until like 4th, 5th century. But even in the 4th century, when the, the word deaconess is starting to develop, women are still called diakonos. For example, um, well, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, Sophia, there's an inscription to Sophia. Oh, here it is. On the Mount of Olives, a tomb inscription, 4th century, said, Here lies Sophia, the slave and bride of Christ, the deacon, the diakonos, the second Phoebe, they call her, the second Phoebe, who slept in peace on the 21st of the month of March. Now, there's a debate about how to understand women here, right? In 1 Timothy 3.11, I understand that's debatable. And, um, but the early church, Chrysostom, for example, took it as, oh, these are female deacons. And that seems to have been well understood in the early church particularly in the East. The West, there's not as much evidence. In the East, probably 80% of the inscriptions and literary allusions to deaconesses are in the East. In the West, if I remember right, there's only like seven or some inscriptions that they found uh, in the West. And in the West, deaconesses never took hold. They never took hold. And they kind of disappeared until the Reformation. And part of that is cultural, part of that is the role of monasteries, you know, the, the women were, went to the monasteries instead of becoming deacons. Or, and deacon, uh, and in the East, deaconesses were very uh, prominent. Uh, they were regarded as ordained. They could participate in the liturgy. They could do baptisms. They did the baptizing, which is a sacerdotal sort of thing in uh, the patristic period. So they did the baptizing and the catechumen. And they, you know, they were very much um, a part of the 
working the operations of the church itself. When we say deacon, and this is what the, the, the Protestants did to it, and what, how it functioned in our history, deacons became, um, <clears throat> I don't know the best way to describe it to be fair. Um, we equated deacons and servants and made deacons more about um, um, waiting on tables and not really part of the ordained community of the church. Right. I, I could talk more about that, but I need to move on. So here's the point for our purposes. Verse 8 says, likewise deacons. Verse 11 says, women. Likewise women. Uh, notice the ESV says, their wives. They add there to the text. It's not in there. They add a pronoun, and they interpret it as wives. Certainly wives is a possible interpretation. Can't rule that out. But it's in this, uh, you know, there are several ways of thinking about that. I don't want to get into an argument about that. I mean, that, there's a lot of data that, that you could go to and check that out. But I would understand it as women, likewise women. Deaconess, deacons. And then he returns the deacons in verse 12. Let the deacons, deacons, let them be the husband of one wife. Now, if you believe that women can be deacons, on whatever ground you, you, you establish that, deacons must be the husband of one wife. And if you believe women can be deacons, then you also believe they must be the husband of one wife. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I say, well, because you're reading husband of one wife in a gender-specific way rather than in a generic masculine way. Paul seems to me to be pretty clear here that deacons have to be husbands of one wife, right? But at the same time, Paul seems to, seems to me, includes women among the deacons. In other words, deacons must be the sort of people who are faithful in their marriages. That's how I would understand it. You know, we talked yesterday, husband of one wife, I think, more specifically, means <coughs> marital fidelity. Not even marital status. It's not necessarily marital status. It's marital fidelity. Are you faithful to your one wife? Are you faithful to your one spouse? And it seems to me, Paul, if you grant that there are female deaconesses, if you grant that, fem that women are deacons, that they are invited into that task in the church, that, that whatever you want to call it, official or whatever, I, you know, but an appointed task in the church, and you believe deacons, that they are functioning as deacons, then you have the question, how can they be the husbands of one wife? Maybe it's because when we read the husbands of one wife, we're reading it in too narrow form. We're reading it like an English phrase rather than the Greek idiom that is present. That the Greek idiom, the three words of the Greek idiom, is, is doesn't say husband of one wife. That, that's not a literal translation. Right? It's three words that doesn't have a verb, that is not used anywhere else, 
And I think Paul uses it as kind of an equivalency for faithfulness. Faithful. If he wanted to say you had to be married, he had other ways of saying that. That were much more clear. The widows have to be faithful to their spouse, too, right? Or had to be faithful to their spouse. They're widows now, but, you know, had to be. So I think women are being included into this, this phrase. So what I would understand is this. That what Paul is doing with the husband of one wife is um, using a generic masculine, which happens all the time in the New Testament. Almost all the verbs in the New Testament are masculine, right? Why? Because he's only talking to men? No. Talking to everybody. Um, At the end of 1 Timothy, he says, And those who desire to be rich... It's in the masculine. He's not just talking to men, though, is he? No, of course not. When he says brothers, who's he talking to? See, the notion of generic masculine. Now, some would say, well, he's using on air here, so it can't be generic. Well, yeah, it can. It can. First Timothy, uh, first, uh, James chapter 1, verse 8, double-minded man is double-minded on air. Does that only apply to men? Or, if anyone thinks he's religious, what's he supposed to do? Keep himself unspotted from the world? There, There it's on air too. But it applies not just to men, right? So on air is not necessarily um, masculine exclusive. If it's used in kind of a generic (coughs) form, a generic um, expression, that's what I want to say, not form, but generic expression or generic idiom, it can include any human being, which I think is demonstrated by the way he talks about deacons, that deacons must be the husband of one wife, but yet there are female deacons. So my point would be that um, husband of one wife is referring to marital fidelity, that it comes under the rubric of if anyone, that there are no masculine pronouns, there are no masculine virtues, no exclusively masculine virtues in this. And that when he says the husband of one wife, he's 80% probably are going to be men. Who knows what the percentage will be, but the majority is usually probably going to be men. So he uses a generic masculine to characterize the if anyone. The if anyone is not delimited by husband of one wife. Rather, the if anyone tells us that the husband of one wife is inclusive, if anyone. If you wanted to exclude something, Paul knows how to do that, because he did it in Titus. He said, I want you to appoint these elders in every city, and he gives the virtue list, and then he says, for that party of circumcision, though, don't let them in. He specifically, he says, if anyone, Titus 1.6, right? If anyone, but then he specifically excludes the circumcision party. He could have done that here, but he didn't. Now, what is this? Let me, I got five more minutes. Let me go to that last part of the outline. The outline is on my website. If you came in late, you can look up the website. Um, I think this helps us read other texts a little more uh, openly. Like Romans 12, 6 to 8. 
that includes teaching and leading, the kind of leading that is described that elders do, right? Or the kind of leading that word is used to describe what, uh, what Phoebe did for Paul. Or the kind of leading that is uh, described in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, those who rule over you. That's one of the gifts in the list of Romans 12. No male pronouns. Seems to me we're open to reading that male and female. That we usually do read it male and female until our understanding of 1 Timothy 2 says, oh no, it can't be that. And we, use, we let one text intrude and delimit Paul's gifting text. Or Ephesians 4, verse 11. God gave gifts, right, to, his, to the people. God gave gifts to people. Some translations say God gave gifts to men. But it's not, it's, it's not men. It's, it's other people. God gave gifts to people. Um, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastor-teachers. You know, whatever that, that's one or two things. Who knows? No. Um, we got a woman apostle, Junia. We have women prophets. We have Pauline co-workers, which I think is probably equivalent to evangelists. You know, we don't have that word evangelist much anywhere else except Philip's an evangelist and Timothy's an evangelist. But we've got a lot of women co-workers, right? I think that's probably, you know, fair to say. And then elders and teachers. So in this list, which Paul puts them in, you know, here's one, apostles, two, prophets, three, teachers. In this list, we know we have women apostles, we know we have women prophets. Why would we not have women pastors and teachers? Ah, we've got a, we got a, we got a verse, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, that's why. See, a lot hangs on that, doesn't it? It hangs on something that is really not all that clear. Or um, it helps us see maybe we have a different lens. If we're open to the fact that, you know, 1 Timothy 1, I'm 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 or, or this if anyone, if we're open to the inclusiveness of that, then when we read about Lydia and her household, or we read about the house, the church in Memphis household, or the household church of uh, Prisca and, and Aquila, or the household church of Philemon and Aquila, or I would suggest the elect lady of 2 John is a woman who heads, I don't want to use the word head because it's never used that way in the New Testament, um, who rules or who leads the house church. She, addressed, she is addressed. Now, of course, that's disputed. We'd have to argue that out, get out our Bibles and walk through it and figure it out. But I think if, we're, if we have, um, if we are able to, to give ourselves some breath here, then maybe the elect lady is a woman who is leading that house church. So someone says to me, but we don't see that in the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. You know, we just, what happened? If that was going on, what happened? Well, first of all, we don't have a lot of literature from, from that, you know. The second century, you can put in a book like this big, you know. I mean, it's, it's not, not that much. Um, but we do have stuff. 
So, for example, um, some would say, well, this is a synagogue background, but in synagogue, never even used women and never let women participate. That's question mark, for example. That's not necessarily true. Um, but we do know, you know, there are about 48 inscriptions, just inscriptions, of synagogue rulers. Not using kephale head, arche, rulers. Synagogue rulers. Of the 48 inscriptions, um, 10 of them are women. There were women synagogue rulers. We also know that there are inscriptions about women presbyters and women bishops. We know they existed. We know in the Montanist movement there were women bishops. We know in the Montanist movement they were leaders of churches. Now some say, well, that Montanist movement is heresy. Well, no, there, there was nothing heretical about the Montanist movement other than it was charismatic and it threatened the institutional church. Right? Now, what I would suggest is and this is something I've got to do a lot more work in, but I gave you some resources for you to read your own. You can read it for yourself. Uh, what I would suggest is, especially in the West, um, that culture kind of takes over eventually. And especially when the church becomes identified with the empire. And rulers and governors, although some could be women on occasion, but we're, probably, we're almost solely men that the empire kind of reshaped the church in a lot of ways. We, we said that as far back as the Jewel Miller film strip, right? The empire, the empire reshaped the church. I think it reshaped the church about this, too. And that the winners of history write the history, right? And well, we don't have as much, but what we do have are inscriptions, and we have even some catacomb paintings, and we, we got some stuff that tells us that there was a lot more going on than what people told us was going on. And a lot of times we discern it by what's forbidden. For example, in the Council of Laodicea, women presbyters are forbidden. Why would you forbid something that wasn't happening? You know, and I say, well, it wasn't supposed to be happening. Well, that, that's to be debated. But they were there, right? I think this opens us up to also read Titus 2, verses 1 and 2 a little differently the older men and the older women, the elder men, the elder women, the younger, elder, younger, is about, not necessarily about age, it's about leadership. Leadership. That's the way Peter does it in 1 Peter 5, right? Talks about elder and then younger. So, my point is that I don't think you can take the text in 1 Timothy 3 and straightjacket it. We have to read it in its context, in its um, culture, and, it, and what it actually says. No male pronouns, for example. Not by how we have read it through an English translation. And even some English translations that usually do a good job, they still put male pronouns in here some, you know, in some ways. So I know that's really hard to say, oh, I gotta depend on you to tell me that? You know, I can't read Greek, how am I gonna know that? You know? Well, get out an interlinear, and you'll see it. There are no male pronouns. So if that's the way to read that text, then I think we're op more open. We don't have this text that comes in and says, nope, you know, there's the line right there. If that text isn't there, then we have more of an openness to read these other texts in a more inclusive way. Like we do all the time. 
when it says brothers. We do it all the time. We just don't do it in Romans 12 because we think 1 Timothy 2 says something that maybe, just maybe, it doesn't really say. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. 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 Thank you.